Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. John 19, verses 17 through 26. Uh, 25, 24, 24. This is the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. Let me pray before we're seated this morning. Our Lord and God, we come before you in the name of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give to us that which is not naturally our desire, which is a desire, Lord, for you, and a desire, Lord, to obey you. Lord, help us to see clearly your word. Give us then eyes to see. Help us to hear, Lord, your word. Give us then ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to believe your word. Give us then hearts that are softened to your spirit and to your word. I decrease that you may increase become less that you and you alone can become more. I pray that you move me out of the way, Lord, and that your people would see you and see you alone. Because to you alone belongs all of the glory. For the glory of God and for the sake of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Or please be seated this morning. I wonder if you have ever thought about how you would like to die. I wonder if you've ever thought about the conditions surrounding your death. How would you order your death if you had the power to do so? What would the conditions of your death be like if you were able to have complete control over that moment and that time? Would you choose to die with your loved ones at your bedside, bidding you a fond farewell into eternal life? 
Would you be sure that all of the ones that you loved were well kept and ensure that they were protected before you pass from this life to the next? What type of death would you like to die? Would you choose to pass from this life into the next peacefully in your sleep? Absent of pain. Absent of fear. Absent of even knowing that the sleep that you slept would be your last. Or maybe while you were enjoying your favorite hobby or indulging in your favorite food and then suddenly you are gone from this life and present into the next. If we are all honest, we would undoubtedly answer in the affirmative to all of these questions. Of course, of course I would love that. It's ideal. To die a death knowing that our families were cared for. To die a death knowing that we are unafraid. They are unafraid. We are happy. They are happy. To die a death absent of grief, absent of pain, would be the most ideal way for us to pass from this life into the next. That is how all of us would like to go if we had the power to choose how we would go. And yet, our Lord Jesus possessed all power, possessed all authority, but the eternal plan of God was to lay down his life in such a way that no, no one of us, not one of us would ever choose if we had the power and authority to control such events. We would choose a path of peace. Our Lord chose the path of grief. We would choose a path that is carefree. Our Lord chose a path that is full of sorrow. We would choose a painless path to our death. Our Lord chose the most dreadfully painful path. And we must ask ourselves this very important question, why? Why choose such a road? Why choose such a path? Why take a path that no one would ever choose for themselves? The answer to that question is simply stated, but the the depths of understanding will always be beyond our comprehension. And the answer is this. He chose the path that no one would have ever chosen because he was the only one that was ever capable, ever worthy, and so privileged to take that sorrowful path. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the only one in all of human history, past, present, and future, who was capable of taking the cup of wrath of God and drinking it down to the very dregs. He is the second Adam. He, Christ, through his perfect passive and active obedience, is the firstborn among many brethren. He is the antithesis of Adam. Christ came and accomplished what Adam failed to accomplish. The perfect obedience to the law of God. Christ came and fulfilled the covenant of works, establishing a new, better covenant of grace that is accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. This is a task The task of taking the sorrowful path that was undertaken by our Lord that only He could take. He was the only one that would ever dare to take one step on that sorrowful path. For He, 
and only He could have ever purchased our redemption through His perfect obedience to God. But I would like you to think for a moment. I would like you to think about when did the perfect obedience of Christ begin? Think. When did the perfect obedience of Christ begin? We may say, well, obviously, it's here in the 19th chapter, at the cross, where the perfect obedience of Christ began. And the cross may be the, the most dramatic act of obedience that our Lord, in our minds, has committed. It is at least the one that stands out the most in our minds. But the cross is not the genesis of the perfect obedience of Christ. The cross is not the genesis or the beginning of the perfect obedience of Christ. I think it is safe to say that the genesis or the beginning of the perfect obedience of Christ took place in an eternity past. When, within the counsel of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the covenant of redemption was made between the Father and the Son. When the Father promised to give to the Son a bride, and when the Son promised to lay down His life for that bride, and this was to be accomplished by our Lord, wrapped in human flesh, and accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read in the canonic hymn of Philippians 2.5, Have this mind in, among you, which was also in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when did the perfect obedience of Christ begin? It was in eternity past within the great council of a triune God. And when was it actualized? It came about when the Savior, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world, became a zygote in the womb of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and the seed of Abraham. When, we say, was the perfect obedience of Christ accomplished when he was raised in obscurity? When he was raised and lived in perfect obedience to his mother and to his father? And still, when he grew in wisdom and in stature with God and with man? When, you say, at the age of twelve, when he grew with the knowledge that God was his father and that he was his son? When, we say, did the perfect obedience of Christ begin? At the age of 30, when he was led by the Spirit of God, not like Adam, into a garden plush with fruit from trees, but into a barren wilderness, where the satisfaction of his soul would be the Word of God. Where did perfect obedience begin when he was led out of the wilderness, resisting the temptations of Satan, the temptations that Adam could not resist, tempted in every way yet without sin, resisting the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and coming up from there, spotted by John. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
When did his perfect obedience begin? It was when he called his own unto himself. No longer would these fishermen be fishermen, but from that moment on they would be fishers of men. Through him, the blind would receive their sight. The lame would walk. The lepers were cleansed. The deaf could hear. The dead were raised. The poor had the gospel, the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who was not offended of me, he declared to John the Baptist. In Acts 10.38 tells us, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And yet in spite of all of these teachings that were spoken with authority, not like the religious leaders of that day, and in spite of all of the signs and wonders that were displayed to authenticate his authority, there was a price on his head. He was hated by the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And from that time, from the time that he opened his mouth and exposed their hypocrisy, they sought to put him to death. And their evil intentions would be pursued through one of his own disciples who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Their wicked hearts would not accept truth that had come down from heaven. They rejected their long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, God in the flesh. But their wicked actions were not beyond the eternal plan of God. They handed Jesus over to be crucified. But little did they know that through the death of Christ, many brothers and sisters would be brought into the kingdom of God. They, like the brothers of Joseph, meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we have the great privilege of being on this side of redemptive history. We are not looking at these passages before us as it were through a glass dimly. But we see, by the grace of God, we see with clarity the sacrifice of Christ upon Calvary's cross. But why do I walk through all of these pivotal moments in the life of Christ for one specific reason this morning? And it is this. It is so that you can see that every second that Christ lived in this world, every second that Christ walked on this earth, it was lived in perfect obedience on behalf of those whom he would call his own. The choice to come and to save his people in eternity past. The world become flesh in the womb of a virgin. The circumcision, obedience to his parents, resisting temptation, the baptism, going about and doing good, submitting to a horrifying death that we are now finding ourselves looking through our fingers to see. The drinking of the cup of wrath of God, the resurrection, and all of that, and all of that, so much more. All of those moments and so much more were accomplished on behalf of his bride. The bride whom he loved, foreloved, foreknew before the foundation of the world. Do you see that? This is not me just ranting and raving about a bunch of words this morning. This is me helping you to see that though the cross is the apex of the perfect obedience of Christ, every moment that he breathed, every step that he took was lived on your and my behalf. So when his mother said to do something and he did it, he did it for every time that you disobeyed your mother and your father. So when he went to the temple every Sunday or a Saturday, and obeyed every law of God. He was doing it on your behalf and my behalf. And the cross is the apex of every single one of those acts of obedience. 
And you must see that it's not just the cross, but it is the entire life that leads to the cross. That was lived for your and my benefit. Every second until he breathed his last. All for his sheep. Today I would like us to look at just two points from these passages that lie before us. And then for the next seven weeks I would like us to focus on the the seven sayings or statements from the cross. Before Jesus yielded up his life. Number one. The Savior bearing his own cross. Verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. We see our Lord counted among the criminals, bearing his own cross on route to Golgotha's hill to hang on a tree as a curse for our sins. He fulfills the type of sin offering of the Mosaic law. Genesis or Luke, Leviticus 16.27 says, And the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, listen, shall be carried outside the camp. As our Lord carried his cross outside of the city gates, the blinded Jews could not see, nor could they perceive that passing before them was the sin offering for the world. The writer to the Hebrews understood this this fulfillment. He said in Hebrews 13.12, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Here, in the normal affairs of a Roman crucifixion, was taking place the the pivotal event in human history. Not a pivotal event, but the pivotal event. And while men went about their day as usual, heaven looked upon this scene as all of humanity hinged upon this particular moment. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who Matthew tells us needed Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the cross as he stumbles under the weight of it. Imagine that. God, who causes all things to be sustained, stumbling under the weight of a Roman cross. He is then nailed to that cross. And hung between two criminals. And he will cry out in his divinity, Father, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he will cry out in his humanity, I thirst. And oh, let this be an encouragement to you. In all of its drama. in, In all of the drama that I could not find words to describe. In all of the emotion that I could not give you with which it carries. Let this be an encouragement to you. How so? How in this is this in any way to be an encouragement to you? It is to be an encouragement when we are tempted to say, No one knows like I know what it means to be abused by suffering. It is to be encouraged when you begin to think or or, or tempted to say, No one knows like I know what it means to be lonely the way I know it. No one knows like I know to be in agony the way that I am in agony. 
The answer from heaven is this. There is one who knows. The answer from heaven is this. There is one who understands. The answer from heaven is this. You are not the only one. For in his suffering, he entered the very depths of all suffering. For all men, of all times. And that kind of thought is not meant to be merely emotional, brothers and sisters. That that understanding is not for us to look upon Jesus and say, Oh, I feel sorry for him. Do not feel sorry for him. That's not the issue. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus will later say to the people who are crying for him, Don't feel sorry for me. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. God's concern is not that we will be emotionally stirred, but that we will be radically changed. God's concern is not that we will be naturally moved, but that we will be spiritually transformed. The soul of his sufferings was the sufferings of his soul. He is, as a side point, our Savior, our sacrifice, our substitute. Let's actually go through that. He is our sacrifice. For those who are familiar with the Old Testament, you may be reading this text, and if you know your Old Testament well, you are getting flashbacks. And you may have a flashback of Genesis chapter 22, the encounter between Abraham and Isaac. When God calls Abraham to give up his son, the son whom he loved, as a sacrifice. And though Abraham may have tossed and turned all night about the decision, he nevertheless awakes early and he lays on his son the wood for the offering. He lays on his son the wood for the offering. Do you see the comparison? Do you see the type and antitype there? He lays on his son, the son whom he loves, the wood for the offering. And as they travel up that mountain, do you see the traveling? Do you see the the type and anti-type? As he travels up that mountain, there is one question on the lips of Isaac. Father, where is the sacrifice? The only difference is this. Jesus does not ask, Father, where is the sacrifice? Jesus himself knows that he is the sacrifice. And the reply of Abraham was this, God will provide a sacrifice without ever knowing the truth that was found within those words. They were words spoken in faith. And there was Isaac laying upon that altar. He is on the verge of having his life taken when by the grace of God. An angel calls out to Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. And God, by his grace, and God in his mercy provides a sacrifice for there was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. Christ is that ram. And who is, who is Isaac? Isaac is you and Isaac is me. We are not Abraham in this story. We are Isaac. We should have been sacrificed. We should have died. But there was a ram caught in the thicket who was to be a substitute in our place. He was our sacrifice. God provided a sacrifice. And it is Christ. Christ is the Passover Lamb of Exodus chapter 12. The Lamb that is without blemish or spot that is slain. And its, its blood is taken and placed upon the doorpost of those who have faith in God. And the angel of death, or the Bible says, actually the Lord passes through Egypt and takes the life of those who do not place the blood on their doorpost. And the Lamb was the type of Christ who comes as the antitype, the fulfillment, and sheds His blood and takes God's wrath against sin for those who place their faith in Christ. He is our sacrifice. He is also our substitute. Now 
not only did Christ die as a sacrifice for, for sin, but he also died as a substitute for sin. Just as the animal of the Old Testament stood in the place of those for whom it was offered, so Christ stood in our place as not a substitute, but the substitute for our sins. The only substitute. The only one who could take our place. The substitute. As the old hymn says, he died in my place, bearing shame and scoffing word. In my place he stood condemned. He stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And think about this. As the onlookers stood and gazed upon that broken, beaten, bloody, bruised Christ. Do you think that there was anyone in the crowd? Anyone at all who could understand or feel the weight of knowing that Christ stood in their place? Was there one at all? We could say, how could there be? How could there be one who truly understood that Christ was their substitute? Oh, but there was one. But there was one. And we don't know if he cared to pause and glance. We don't know if he paused to look back. But there is one that if he truly looked back to gaze upon the cross of Christ, he understood what it truly meant for Christ to be a sacrifice. His name is Barabbas. Yes, Barabbas. Only Barabbas could truly feel the weight of gazing upon the place of the skull and seeing three crosses, knowing that one of those crosses had actually been prepared for him. That Christ took his spot. That Christ was his substitute. And it was only Barabbas that could look upon those and say, I should have been there. Barabbas better than anyone knew at that particular moment what it was to be, or for Christ to be, his substitute. And this is true Christianity. We don't know if Barabbas ever looked. All we can do is speculate. But if there was one, it was Barabbas. And this is true Christianity. This is the true expression of the gospel. This is what it means to give testimony to our faith. And this is what we decry and declare when people are asking us about the hope that lies within us. True Christianity is not to say that we don't smoke or drink or chew or associate with those who do. True Christianity is not to say I now go into a church with over a thousand people. And we have a special guest each week. And the most popular band coming next month. And how many do you have in your church? And why so many? Why so few? No. True Christianity is having a deep conviction within the depths of your soul that Christ has stood as your sacrifice, as your substitute, and He is your Savior for the sins that you can never save yourself from. In 10,000 years times 10,000, He is your substitute. And if you place your faith in Him, if you repent of your sins, then you too can be saved. He offers to you grace that you can never repay, a perfect life that you can never live, an eternity that will never be taken away from you, only if you trust in Christ as your Savior. Third, He is our Savior. There is no one who could ever save you. There is not one who could ever save you. The President, whoever he or she may be, will not be able to save you. A better education, though I encourage it, will not be able to save you. A better job, living in a better better neighborhood, none of these things will be able to save you. Traveling to a different city, a different state, or a different country, none of these things will be able to save you. Christ and Christ alone, so much Christus will be able to save you. He and He alone is your Savior. 
the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. For God did not send His Son into the world to, the con- to condemn the world, but in order that through Him the world might be saved, John 3.17. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, this morning I implore you, If you have not placed your faith in the sacrifice, the substitute, and the Savior, then I implore you this morning, trust in Him. Turn to Christ and be saved. Place your faith in Christ. And you will find Him to be a perfect Savior, substitute, and sacrifice. He bears the cross for you. Secondly, the King of the world. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. It was customary at that time for victims to carry their crosses along the longest route to the place of execution. This was done to add to their humiliation. And it may also be done to serve as a warning to all would-be criminals that this would be their fate if they continued in their criminal activity. But there was also another reason. There was a sign that hung above the crosses on route to the execution describing the nature of their crime. The long route was an opportunity for those who read the post to protest against the accusation and demand a retrial. History actually tells us there were oftentimes when those who were headed to the cross did not make it to the cross because there was a protest, a retrial, and the criminal was found innocent. And as our Lord staggered through the dusty streets of Rome or of Jerusalem, the shouts of mockery and ridicule filled his ears, and so did the cries of sadness from those whom he had touched. And his response to those who were crying was this, daughters of, of Jerusalem, he says in, in Luke twenty three twenty eight, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves, and weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus' response to those who are crying out to him, Don't cry for me. Don't worry about me. Worry about you. Worry about yourselves. I am going to be fine. You are the ones who are in trouble. You are the ones who are in danger. And he is no doubt prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Forty years later. And the cross that he bore was nothing compared to the devastation that they would soon see. So cry for yourselves. 
yourselves. Weep for yourselves. You think that you have all time. You think that you have all time in all of history to get right with God. No, cry for yourselves. Turn to Christ because your time is short. And what was the nature of his crime? What was the sign that was posted above his cross? What was the post and the accusation? It read this. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Does that sound like an accusation? Does that sound like a crime? Crimes and accusations are more like, this man is a murderer. This man is a thief. What was written above the cross of Christ? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It doesn't sound like an accusation. It sounds more like a declaration. And as Jesus carries that cross, and as Simon of Cyrene helps him to carry that cross through the city, there is a declaration by one unexpected man, Pilate. Behold your king. Behold your king. And Pilate is continuing his theme. He said in verse 14 of that chapter, Behold your king. Verse 15 of that chapter, Shall I crucify your king? And Pilate is attempting to poke fun at the religious leaders. I'll show them that they do have a king. Thus the sign. And as he walked through the Jerusalem streets, beaten, bloody, beyond recognition, the sign declared to every single person a truth that was beyond Pilate's understanding. What's the significance of the sign? Jesus, King of the Jews, is crucified so that he may become king of a kingdom that transcends even that of Israel, that reaches to the, to the very edges of California, Bakersfield. But he is not just King of the Jews, but he is King over all peoples of every nation, tribe, and tongue who place their faith in him. There was a declaration that day. The Bible says in Revelation 5, 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This was an extension of the kingdom of God, and it was written in three different languages. Why? Why? Such a, a, a graphic display of the kingship of Christ, and yet it was declared to people of all different languages. The title that was placed over Christ was written in Greek, in Latin, and in Hebrew. And those who saw the sign could not fail to read the sign. Those who passed by those three crosses that was central could not fail to see that there was a royal title over his head. All people coming in and out of that city would be able to read that sign. Aramaic was the local language. Greek was the common tongue that everyone spoke. It was the, the language for business. Latin was the language of the government that was replacing Greek. The local language, the business language, the government language, anyone passing by would have been able to read the sign. Pilate was unwittingly making the plan of God known to the world. 
Pilate unwillingly being used by God. Pilate apparently mocking Jesus is actually being used by God to make a declaration to the entire world. It is true he is king of the Jews and his kingdom does not end there for he is king over heaven and earth and under the earth and to all those who have ever lived, we will all bow our knee before this king one day, whether we want to or not. We will bow before this king. To him every knee will bow. To him every tongue confesses. He is Lord. Behold your king. Behold your king. His kingdom shall have no end. And on the day when he gathers all of his own people from every, every tribe and nation and tongue, we will all bow before the king and lay down our crowns before him who is only worthy of praise. And what was the reaction of the Jews? Anger. They rejected his rule. And that is exactly what those who have, who have hard hearts, that's exactly what they do. That is exactly how they respond to the kingship of Christ. After hearing of the sacrifice, the substitute, and the Savior in Christ, there will be those who inevitably reject the kingly rule over Christ, of Christ over their own hearts. They will go about their days and say, well, how is that going to help me pay my bills? They will go about their days and say, how is that going to help me pay or take care of my children? In every way, it will help you to know that your job is temporary. And that this life of you paying bills is just for a moment. That there is another kingdom that is coming. In every way, your kids are not your own. You want to raise them up and then one day send them out to God. So that He may use them for His glory. And that you may be sent off to another kingdom. This is not it. How is that going to help me? I'm tired this morning. Slap yourself this morning. Wake yourself up. You have but a moment, a period of time in which this will be over. So take it now. Don't be like the Jews who saw the kingly rule of Christ before them and rejected it. Don't be like those soldiers who, who, who unwittingly and who blaseed through seeing Christ crucified as if it was just another day or as if this was just another sermon. They resist His rule. They cast off His rule. They don't need His rule. They scoff at His rule over their hearts. Don't say King of the Jews. Say this man said he was King of the Jews. Do you reject Christ as King over your heart? And don't mistake your presence as being evidence that you are under His kingship. What I have written, I have written, Pilate responded. And Pilate was no different. We may think that there was a soft spot, spot in the heart of Pilate for Jesus. But there was not one inch of softness in his heart. When questioning Jesus, he went from fear. And that fear that most natural people have when being faced with their own mortality. But he reacted in the same way that most hard-hearted people would respond. With pride and with a false sense of autonomy of their own destiny. You won't speak to me. Don't you know I have power? And let us not be blind. Let us not be hard-hearted as Pilate. Let us not be hard-hearted and obstinate as the religious leaders. And let us not be cavalier as the soldiers who crucified so many people. But they've become accustomed, so accustomed to crucifixion that they're playing dice for his clothes. You've seen one crucifixion, you've seen them all. You've seen one man die, you've seen them all. It was just another day at the gravesite. It reminds me of one of my, my favorite plays of Shakespeare is Hamlet. 
It reminds me of, of the grave diggers who are digging graves. And as they're digging graves, they're singing silly songs. And Hamlet is horrified at the sight. And he says to Horatio, how is this possible? And their response was this, custom had made it in him a property of easiness. They do it so often, they do it with ease. And I warn you young people, and I warn you middle-aged people, and I warn you old people, don't be so accustomed to hearing sermons and walking out and doing nothing about it that it becomes easy for you to hear sermons week after week and do nothing about it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't make this a custom of ease. Don't, don't stand there or sit there and judge, oh, that was fire. Oh, that was deep. And go home and do nothing about it. Don't sit there and say, oh, that was heavy this morning. No, go do something about it. I don't care for your praise. I don't care for your applause. I don't care for a pat on the back. Go and live this and share it and spread it. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the scene of the soldier who won pieces of Christ's garments? Imagine seven, mine, putting it on. Jesus has died. They walk away wearing a garment of Christ, maybe possibly wearing the sandals of Christ. And someone says to them, Where did you get that? Where did you get that garment? Where did you get those sandals? Oh, I got it from a guy that was crucified lately. Or just past week. You like them. And I begin to think that there are those who walk around with the name of Christ. But have not yet embraced Christ. They walk around saying, look, yes I am. But live as though they are not. The question is, what about you? Are you walking about with the label of Christ without ever trusting in Christ? And I am not for one second fooled by the fact that I'm standing in front of those who are consistently here week after week. And yet I still ask you the same question. What about you? Are you walking about with the label of Christ without ever trusting and embracing Christ? I pray that you have turned to Him and I pray that you are trusting in Him. That your hearts be not hard like the religious leaders. That you be not blind like Pilate. And that you not be so cavalier as the religious or as those soldiers. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we do thank you for grace. I pray that there are those who are sitting here this morning that will praise you as we partake of your table. That you have removed from them a hard heart. I pray that there are those this morning that will praise you as they partake of the Lord's table. That you have removed the scales from their eyes and that they are no longer blind. I pray that there are those this morning that praise you for you have taken away their cavalier attitudes. And I pray God that as we fellowship with you at your table this morning, that you would help us to recognize that even as your word has gone forth this morning, it has not gone forth from a man, but it has gone forth as 
It has gone forth, Lord, through a vessel that is used to utter the words of God. Not in a new revelatory sense, but in a way that declares this is what God has said. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Seek Him with all your heart. We welcome all those who are members of His church. Come this morning and worship. Come this morning in fellowship with your King. Let us stand.